Thursday, the 14th. I think it's the 14th. 15th. 15th of August. Yeah, I can't amazing. believe it. One o'clock on the East Coast. Market call. Guy Adami, Dan Nathan. In a minute, the great Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting will be joining us. Today's market call brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Of course, FactSet is our data provider, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. Today, Dan, the market's being powered by not the U.S., but by all things China, which we'll talk about. Yeah. But how are you today? I'm doing well. You know, it's interesting. We spent some time yesterday on our On the Tape podcast that we do mm. on Monday, usually with EY from SoFi. On vacation. She is on vacation. She deserves a vacation. Just, you know, I got two emails about her last night from a, a viewer, from a listener, just giving her compliments, by the way. Were they were they upset that she wasn't with us? I think a little bit. I think, oh, I I think you and I that. can be a bit insufferable uh, together one-on-one -on -one here. Um, um, but, you know, it's interesting. We spent a lot of time talking about China. It seemed like over the weekend, there were a whole host of stories that things that we have been tracking, we're trying to be very careful, not trying to sound like sort of doomsayers. And, and I think part of the thing with China is that some of the loudest voices about China, whether it was this debt bubble that's buried, you know, whatever it was in commercial real estate land or whatever the heck it is, it's like, They've been talking about the same thing for 10 years, right? And so we're cognizant of that. But sometimes if you go back and look at the history of the markets and you have aptly brought this up, not last week, but multiple weeks ago, the summer of 2015 in August, some similar sort of concerns were happening and the S&P 500 woke up all mm -hmm. of the sudden from its summer slumber and dropped 10% in a straight line in a matter of days. Pretty much. And, you know, we're not saying necessarily we're on the precipice of something like that, but history is absolutely repeating itself eight years later, almost to the day. It's interesting. That was a yuan deval out of China, but now it's just doing it sort of on its own. But not really, because the Chinese are trying to add liquidity to the system. And what happens when you do that? Things start to go haywire and it's manifesting itself in their currency. But it's not just China. We'll talk about Japan as well. But let's look at the headlines real quick. because. A Everybody's them, talking about it all of a sudden. You know, people start to pick up on these themes. You know, we're not haters. We're just trying to sort of at least connect the dots with what's going on in the world. And right now, to me, the epicenter of everything is global bond markets. And then if you want to get granular, some of the things that are going on in China. And here are the headlines that we just pulled let's four of them to, if you go, want to take a look yeah, at Yeah, let's it. go back to the Bloomberg one because I think this is kind of interesting. And, and again, these are things that we've been kind of pointing out, if you will. But going back to that 2015, 2016 period, because it kept on going, there were credit issues, there were mm -hmm. growth issues, there was issues about their currency floating. And it seems to be all the similar sorts of things. Now, the question, and this is maybe something that we'll hit with Danny Moses when we record our On the Tape podcast. Thursdays on Thursday. And we actually have Peter Bookvar on with us this week, and he's the perfect guy. He's on Fast mm -hmm. Money with us tonight, today at 5 o'clock, and he's going to give us a little preview of this longer conversation we're going to have. But look at all these sorts of things. Let's go to Peter's note this morning, Guy, because Peter's been talking about this sort of stuff for a while, not a doomsayer. I call you Nostradami every once in a while. But again, we're not fortune tellers. That's why we're kind of picking up on this stuff on a daily basis. Look at this. What do you take out of this comment from Peter in his note? this morning. And again, this is not some Johnny come lately to this. This is something that he tracks. Kind well, of he's closer. pointing out, obviously, the level in Yuan and other things that we've been talking about. And he's right to point it out. He's also been pointing to global bond markets yeah. and the volatility that we're seeing and sort of I don't want to say the undoing because that might be too. But there's clearly some things happening in the global bond markets. It's happening here in the United States with our 10 year yield pushing up against the levels we saw back in October. It's happening in Europe. It's clearly happening in Japan. And to a certain extent, you're going to start seeing similar things happening in China. So he's right to point it out. And again, 
you can't have it both ways. When things are going well in China, you can't use that as sort of a pillar of your bull case for the U.S. equity market, then say it doesn't matter on the flip side when things are not going particularly well and things are not going particularly well. And the fact now the Chinese are not going to report their youth unemployment number. I mean, you ask yourself, what do you think is going on there? And then put up that prior slide real quick, because think about what Taiwan is saying. I mean, they are, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, Taiwan's election is all about war. They are preparing for it. Clearly, the Chinese are preparing for it. The only people that clearly are not preparing for it are market participants here in the United yeah, States. Yeah, with the 16 VIX, it seems kind of complacent. You know, it's interesting. This one headline about the China youth unemployment, and we were talking about it last week, at 21% or something, isn't everything that we hear about China is that they have this huge demographic problem? So you would think that they – so they're saying they have too few, few youths, right? Like, So I don't understand how they have so few jobs. And they can't get jobs, right. I, I don't – like that that's not something that I like is easily um reconciled or or explained i mean they have they're they have an economy that's probably 50 years behind the curve they're trying to obviously getting into the 21st century but they're woefully unprepared because of demographics and because some other things and to a certain extent i used it before i mean things are starting to unravel a little bit now i think you're going to start to see hints of that in terms of the vix here you mentioned it up today we'll see but with each passing day, this is not going to rectify itself. And President Biden said a couple of weeks ago, one of his concerns amongst many, a wounded China yeah. is liable to do things that don't necessarily make sense. To me, that means they may do something with Taiwan. Yeah. All right. And I've been saying, listen, yeah. I mean, that's we're not just pulling that out of thin air. We've been talking, we're not hoping for it. That's but that's out there. Well, it's funny. You know, I remember in um, late. 2021, you know, when when there was fears of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, it was kind of telegraphed. A lot of folks, a lot of political scientists, a lot of pundits were saying it's not going to happen, right? It's just not something. And so I remember we had um, Ian Bremer mm-hmm. of the Eurasia Group on on the tape podcast in December, and you were like, "This is happening." Yep. Like, like, and I remember, I remember you being very definitive about that. And we tried to think about well, what are some of the knock on effects. This was at a time when the Fed was just starting to come to grips with what they had missed about inflation, right? Now, ironically, Guy, is that we had that spike in crude oil. We had that spike in nat gas when tanks started rolling into Ukraine. But that was kind of it after a month or two. Now, you know what I mean? So, like, it's kind of – and a lot of folks, I think, really – overdid the like the, the permanent implications of that also with food stuff and maybe because the war is drawn on for so long maybe we'll start to see that you've been talking about a reemergence a little bit in some of those inflationary pressures but again the way that if if something happened with Taiwan, whether it starts with a blockade or it starts with something economic in, in nature, it's not likely to go to the way that we think it's going to go. No, never does. And yeah. to your point, obviously Russia, Ukraine, the need it la- the effect. I don't. I want to be clear here. We're not talking about what the humanitarian aspect of it. We're talking yeah. about the market implications. I mean, what happened in the commodities market and the crude oil market lasted maybe a month and a half, two months max, and then things started to normalize. But Look what's happening with the Russian ruble. I mean, it's at levels we haven't seen since the war started. So that's reversing on itself. That's not particularly encouraging. And of course, the difference being Russia is a fly in the ass of the Chinese economy. And obviously, the importance of Taiwan to what goes on here in the United States cannot be understated at all. So it's different in so much as if something were to happen between China and Taiwan, it could be worse. And that's not me talking about it. There are other people 
that have been out there saying very similar things. All right, before we get to Carter, I just want to pull up that one slide from Axios, and I thought this was really interesting about strong men not being great at managing economies. And when you think about this, and one of the things that I think a lot of folks here in the U.S. were opposed to our aid of Ukraine here is they feel like we are pushing Russia into the arms of China and giving China, you know, the, the ability to kind of benefit or at least from this kind of, um, I guess, isolation that that Russia mm -hmm. has faced on the world stage. And the combination of those two countries, you know what I mean, supporting each other in these endeavors, especially with the potential for something with Taiwan, is not a great thing. I see that. But I think, again, what we learned from the pandemic is that our alliance on China for our supply chains and for tech and, and chips and the like is not a good thing. And what Europe has figured out in a very harsh way is that their reliance right. on Russia. So for a whole host of reasons, you know, our support for Ukraine, and again, this is my opinion, has to do very much with our natural it's security. It's going to be interesting right? because, you know I mean? no, 100%. And it's clear that U.S. companies are trying to move away from their their ties to china in terms yeah. of supply chains and production and all those things the problem of course is it doesn't happen overnight going for 30 so years, you know 40 years. there's going to be a window where if something were to happen these companies would be hamstrung by it without question now five years from now we're having a much different conversation and maybe nobody will care about taiwan at that point but in the here and now I think it's extraordinarily important. Yeah, and I guess the last point for U.S. multinationals is kind of the precedent that was set as far as pulling out of Russia when they invaded uh, Ukraine. I mean, that was something that I think at the time when we saw major U.S. brands like Starbucks and McDonald's and, and the like here. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. And hopefully you mentioned the humanitarian side and you were always, I, I think, uh, very adept at pointing this out is like, yeah, we're charged with looking at this stuff through the lens of the markets and economics, but we don't want to underscore the fact that um, you know that would be a humanitarian um, disaster. Mm -hmm. All right, let's bring Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting in for us. Carter, how you doing, buddy? Man, I'm good. I'm good. Oops. You guys look great. The studio and uh, it's all very um, crisp. Pro. It's, it's pro, pro, as the kids it's say, just right? Crisp, but good lines, it's great colors. The well, white shirts, the blue background. The we're digging logo. your kitchen. I love it. Okay, like, 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 as far as I'm concerned, I, love, I mean, you know, the whole thing is working. I'm just waiting for something like a dog or something to appear from that dining room. <laughs> that would be so 2021. Carter's got this all dialed. All right, Carter, we want to do a, a few things with you really quickly, and we appreciate you being here with us on a Tuesday. We want to take a look at Chinese equity markets, and we know that you know. Let, let's just pull up the Shanghai Composite. We have um, a chart of our own that we made here, and I just think it's interesting. Um, and we want to look at your charts on the FXI. The I shares um, a large cap ETF that that tracks the Chinese market, very heavy into tech names and, 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 and internet names in particular. But let's look at the Shanghai Composite right here because this one is interesting to me, Carter, because I think probably a lot of global investors are more, more focused on this than the FXI. I think that's something, it's a US trading instrument for all intents and purposes. What does this Shanghai chart say to you? It's a pretty quick drop over the last few weeks or so. We know that the intervention that we saw over the weekend here and again you know a lot of us got conditioned when guy when when we saw co co countries coming in and easing the knee-jerk reaction is to buy equities mm -hmm. right but that wasn't the case here as it relates to the shanghai sure i mean if you think about just the sort of the the sequencing right i mean it basically makes a low around the same time as the s p and global equities um and it, it struggles since may whereas obviously the us has gone on to make new intermediate highs um, there's not a whole lot of authority to this level, um, the green line, uh, the horizontal green line notwithstanding. Uh, it, it's really what a pair of twos is, right? I mean, this is sort of 
neither here nor there on the short term. Long term, and we'll look at some of those later, I do think it continues to be uh, a developing bottom. Uh, but here at the 3150 plus minus level, pair of twos. It is fascinating to watch. I mean, it's somewhat counterintuitive. Dan brought it up that historically you see, obviously, the knee-jerk reaction being buy everything, you know, and let the chips fall where they may. Th something's changed. But, you know, you brought a series of F FXI charts that may suggest maybe for one day or so that worked. But in long term, I think you're starting to like what you're seeing here. Obviously, FXI, I think it's heavy Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu. Yeah. Probably a handful of other names that will come to me in a minute, but let's walk through this FXI charting, Carter. Right. So you know, it's a, it's severe weakness, right? You're talking about 55 to 22, uh, an extreme sell-off that basically starts before the sell-off in the U.S., although it bottoms at the same time in the October-November period of 2022. But let's annotate it and see what we can do. So the first iteration. Um, calling into effect or citing the COVID low. So obviously it undercuts the COVID low in a big way and recovers to it several times and hits its head at that level. And that remains a pretty important reference point. Now, if we put in the downtrend line instead of this line, let's toggle, let's do those back and forth. Um, you know, there's a reference point here. And so if we look at the downtrend line and now let's put in an arrow, the arrow is a judgment, of course. That's one could say, okay, so what? You drew an arrow. Who cares? That's your opinion. But I, I think the next chart will will show why. Uh, this is in the process of bottoming out um, as formations go. And if we put them all together, uh, I think ultimately we will yet again make it back into the sort of mid-30s as opposed to where we are, which in the high 20s. So um, at the end of the day, I would say it's asymmetrical. If it's wrong being long here. It's probably more of a small wrong, a waste of time. Uh, if it's right, we can we can catch a pop. But the alternative is it's, if it's big wrong and that this is going back to those lows, well, then global equities are going much lower, et cetera, and so forth. So um, let me ask so, you a quick question, yeah. Carter, because a lot of this, you had a bullish, and I'm looking at some questions in the chat. You were obviously bullish in Alibaba. That was extraordinary because that stock went from 90 to 103, it's round trip. So in some ways, is this just sort of a reaffirmation of that Alibaba call? Well, remember, Baba popped most recently on its earnings has given it all back and then some. So it's below where it was when it had a news-related jump, pop, or advance. You can see it there just three, four days ago, the, the pop and now below. But if we were to look at a longer-term Baba chart, maybe longer-term the way we just looked at FXI or HSI, you'll see, of course, that this is this is also so. The, mm -hmm. the trick here is you have to well, you don't have to do anything, but you one should, if you can say, remove all that one knows. If you didn't know this was Baba, it was the black screen with those blue bars, and it could be a software stock, a casino stock, it could be uh, an ETF. It doesn't matter what. Is this something that had a great run up? Yes. Is it something that gave back the entire move, a collapse? Yes. And is it something that looks to be starting to stop going down, curing healing? Yes. And so all of those three things I said are incontestable. Nobody's opinion, those are the facts. Great run-up, great collapse, now basing and bottoming. But is it going to make a new low? That's the asymmetrical part. I think if we're wrong, it just muddles, gets stuck, doesn't really get better. But if we're right, we get a nice pop. Because the alternative is that this is going to make a new, yet a new low um 
that would be starting to get into all-time lows for BABA, which means that China has got substantial downside, which means global equities and global economy are basically uh, got a lot of downside. And while yeah. that's possible, that's not today's lunch. Yeah, and so it's interesting because again, sometimes you know, you know, Carter, you you've mentioned this on many occasions on Market Call that you're just looking at the, the charts and you're you're doing the work that you do, and sometimes we gotta get tripped up by all the things that we think we know or the things that we interpret from the the news flow, and and so sometimes it's it's as simple as the way um, you lay it out, and it's a lot of pattern recognition, and 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 you have your process. So we appreciate that um, because again, it's, sometimes it's one of those things that might help you by thinking about the technicals and looking at some of the divergences um, of how, why some of the news flow and the sentiment might be shifting in a way um, that doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense when you're in that moment. So um, I appreciate that. You know, Guy just said this, Carter, a little bit before, you know, really for him, a lot of this comes down to the bond market and yields. And, you know, we just want to pull up this 10-year yield here because this is one that I've been on the other side of. I've been kind of picking at, at least through calls, the TLT. I've talked about it over the last few weeks and I've been wrong. Um, uh, you know, look at the 10-year yield here. It got right back up towards those kind of 2022 highs a little bit. And if you look at how far it's come, you know, from the lows in the start of 2022, what do you think here? We have that 150-day. It's down there, I think, at like 370 or something like that. Um, if we look at the CME, the, the Fed funds tracker here, we're looking out to the September meeting. There's no meeting in August. We know that we have the, the, the Fed uh, Jackson Hole Summit uh, later this month. Um, but, you know, they're, they're not expected to by any means to raise interest rates again at that September meeting. What are your thoughts on yield here? Is this a constructive looking pattern or is this something you want to fade at those prior highs? Right. I mean, I you know, one has to, I suppose, as I say, thank you for choosing a side, right? Mm. There's no buts. On, however, on the other hand, that's all nonsense. Um, you have to have a view and, and you go with it. And if you're right, you profit. And if you're wrong, you take measures and you lose, but you control the loss. I remain in the camp that rates are basically peaking, have peaked, and that um, we know the dollar peaked in 20 September 2020. One month later, rates peaked. That's the bottom uh, for now in equities. And the, the issue is consensus is that we, quote, break out, whether they're coming to that judgment based on the fundamentals, the Fed or otherwise, or whether they're basing it on oil moving up or whether they're basing it on the chart. Uh, there's an overwhelming view that we are going to break out. Um, and we'll note, of course, and you know, and everyone knows that real 10-year yields did make a slight new high mm -hmm. just in the last two days. But it all feels as though it doesn't have enough oomph to really um, sort of stretch higher in a big way, uh, which is to say, I think that it doesn't make the new high and ultimately starts working lower or makes a slight new high that isn't meaningful and and then works lower, captures 90% of the odds. Because I think it's a small percentage of odds that we make meaningful new high in yields. It's interesting. So you look at this, Carter, and it was Bill Ackman a couple of weeks ago, and we actually, you and I won the show together, and it was the day that he announced he was betting against the bond market. He thought yields were going higher. He top-ticked it, if you he recall, did. in terms of the, I mean, literally, that was the day that we top-ticked in the 10-year. And we went from, I think, 422 that day, I think we got as low as 386 recently or three ish and now we're right back so we'll see again right. and interestingly on the tape i remember that day and bill gross was out you right. know, saying that he's saying this is the buying opportunity of a lifetime and and 
look, we all, you're only as good as your last trade. And is there, is, is Ackman better, whatever that word's in quote, than Bill Gross? Is Bill Gross better? I mean, it's not about that. We all, we all are trying to make a buck. I mean, otherwise there's no point to this. There's nothing noble about Wall Street and, and, and about speculating. It's for making money. There's nothing noble about investment banking and it's for making fees. So the question is, um, what is the right play here to make some money? And I think consensus overwhelmingly playing for higher yields. My hunch is it feels a little crowded, just as at oil at 65, oh my gosh, recession, oil's going to 45. What happens? We just jumped to almost 90. Now everyone's looking for oil going higher. You, It's sometimes right to be consensus, but once you have an extreme move, sticking with consensus is usually uh, wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to bring it up because here we are. So we're right back. So now it's the make or break time for if you're a bond bear today or tomorrow or the days where this thing needs to break. In other words, TLT needs to break down probably below 91 and a half, 92, or conversely, 10-year yields need to close above, I don't know, four and a quarter, 426 or so. So keep that in mind. Personally, if yields do start going markedly higher, that's not going to be positive for equities in any way, shape, or form, which leads us to the next question from, I think, Earl. There's a very tight pennant forming in the HYG. How do we break out of it? So I don't know if we can pull an HYG chart up or not. I'm looking at what you're looking at, and you're right. I mean, there's an uptrend in place effectively from October. There's a down place in, pl- in place, I guess, from February-ish, and you can see those lines will basically intersect about where we are now, this 75 level. I happen to think, Carter, if I'm right about what's going on, we break to the downside because I do think there's a credit event. But, Dan, that's how that's what makes markets. I mean, those are the decisions you have to make. And in some ways, you don't have to make the decision until the pennant breaking one way or another does it for you. Well, it's interesting. And I think what Carter's going to focus on next might actually prove to be the, 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 the tiebreaker for this, what you would say is a pair of twos in the HYG, I'm guessing, Carter, right? Yeah. Let's I mean, it's at- a standard. You could feel the tension, mm-hmm. but yeah. you can feel that it's it's equilibrium, right? There's a there's an even matching off every dollar that's coming in and buying this thing. There's another that's selling it, and there neither is in the ascendancy. And when there's more sellers than buyers, you yeah. go down. And there's more obvious, and so at this point they're matched off. But equilibrium uh, exists, but it cannot persist. And so we've, we're about the end of the runway, which is the point of drawing lines. When you draw a pennant, you draw converging trend lines. You 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 know it's like the end of the runway. You know what happens when you get the end of the runway? You either take off or you hit the damn wall. Yeah. So, well, well, it's funny. So, so again, I want to talk about the banks here because I know you brought some charts in the XLF, the ETF that tracks the major money centers, but also obviously Berkshire. You want to focus on that one too a little bit. Our friend Doug Cass over at Seabreeze. I mean, he's forgotten more about bank stocks than I'll ever know. He's been calling them, and he was long them. I think he bought them well uh, either early this year. Um, you know, it's some, maybe maybe the holder in the regional banking crisis or so. And now he thinks they're kind of value traps here. And so I think the direction of the banks might be the tell on where the high yield credit market goes. If you think about all the things that we've talked about in the show so far about issues in China with credit, global financial banks that might have exposure, if their economy is weak, what are the knock on effects, right, that we might feel in other parts of the world? And, and again, it brings you back to financials in a surging rate environment or where rates are likely to be higher for longer. So, Carter, 
Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in the XLF, because on a day like today, when I see the S&P down 90 basis points, but I see the largest bank on the planet, JP Morgan, down two and a quarter percent, and it's come off its recent highs in a meaningful way, and it's approaching to me what I think is, you know, maybe an interesting support level a bit lower, which was that breakout level from a month and a half ago. It tells me that we're getting to a point, maybe a possible technical inflection point in this sector. Yeah, I mean, JP Morgan likely to the dip that's underway is likely to continue and and uh, down to the tops from which it broke out. Uh, I would say that's uh, almost a lock. The real question is, does it find support there or does it sink further into support? But either way, buy, sell, hold. JP Morgan, I'm a seller here. It's interesting. Jason Shapiro's got a comment. Clearly, he's trying to be a wise guy, but that's fine. Uh, so <laughs> HYG breaks to the downside, but 10-year rates going lower, WTF. I assume that means what the fuck. Um, so here you go, Jason. I didn't say that. I don't think Carter said that. But I'll play your reindeer game because I'm in that kind of mood today. There's a chance that the HYG could absolutely break to the downside and yields could go lower as people uh, find bonds of flight to quality. So if the HYG goes lower, which I think it will, means the market's probably going to go lower. So you actually could see yields go lower in a flight to quality in U.S. bonds. So weird things do happen. But, Jason, thanks for playing our home game. I appreciate that. So, right, so let me, let me, we got to answer that. Hold on. The HYG saying it, you, HYG can't go lower if rates go lower? I, I think his point was if HYG is going lower, you know, bonds, yields going lower as well doesn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, that's – Well, that, hold on. Just – just, so the low point of the last two years, five years, ten years in HYG was what? The COVID low. And where were rates then? They were almost zero. It's a nonsensical statement, whoever made it. All right. It's well, one. Thanks for, as Guy said, thanks for playing. Let's look at the XLF because you said, okay, the JP Morgan is obviously the second largest component in that um, ETF that tracks the, you know, the major money center banks here. Um, let, let's let's see what you're thinking here because I think your charts are fairly definitive. I mean, when you think about um, just the levels in which they got to, um, they got you know Q2 earnings off to a very good start in middle of July. It gave a nice kind of kind of I don't know. I, I think a tailwind at least to what was maybe some bearish sentiment heading into that period here. And it seems like, you know, a, a lot of the enthusiasm, uh, the bloom has come off the rose a little bit here, uh, Carter. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, we're going to look at at least the charts that I thought we could look at are, are a great, uh, strong financial, the biggest one in the site at Berkshire Hathaway, mm -hmm. and then one that's pulled up in today, uh, Discover. But before looking at that, I think it's important to, sort of put in context financials. We know the financials are the third largest sector in the market right now at about 12.5% weight, but in many ways they're the most important, right? The banks, the transmission mechanism for the economy and um, their importance far exceeds software company X, Y, or Z, right? Or trucking company X, Y, Z. And so it's important to note that financials generally are a, a very, um, what, not only cyclical business, but risk uh, embracing and therefore uh, boom and bust. We know that Morgan Stanley, not in this chart, but is right now trading where it was in the year 2000. It's 2023. This is one of the great financials of all time. If you have made no progress in 23 years, it means you're basically down 30, 40% adjusted for inflation over 23 years. It could not be a worse investment. But what I wanted to start with is this two panel chart. Let's go back to it. Um, this is the all data chart for the S&P financial sector on the top. And then it's the relative performance on the bottom. We're at the 09 financial crisis low, mm -hmm. which is to say 
WTF? Mm -hmm. Can we just get a WTF from somebody? I mean, the mm -hmm. point is financials are almost never a good bet. The Morgan Stanley is unchanged for 23 years. It's a highly cyclical, risk-embracing, boom-bust, leveraged business, and it's prone to screw-ups. Anyway, uh, financials uh, just don't like them. But let's look at um, maybe two. Uh, so, oh, let's look at the XLF itself. So here is the XLF since 2020. Let's put in some lines. Those lines kind of draw themselves. Let's put in some arrows. And let's uh, put in the down arrow. I think we go to the lower band. If we pull this back to 2020, the COVID low, we're, 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 in, the, we're in the apex. And um, that failure recently at the top, uh, now heading lower, I think you want to be short XLF, not long. Yeah, I agree with that. And if you listen, listen, Fitch, say what you want. I mean, you know, we can talk about Fitch all day. They're late to the dance. Doesn't mean they're wrong, number one. And number two, if you look what's going on, again, global currency markets, global bond markets, I'm telling you, and Danny Moses was talking about this before, somebody's about to blow up. And it's going to manifest itself somehow, I think, in the banking sector, and we'll see. So I've long thought since March, April that Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, that was going to be the first of many. Um, so it turns out there have been a couple smaller things along the way. But just given the moves we're seeing, it's almost it would be virtually impossible not to have some sort of blow up, given that given the magnitude of the moves we're seeing in, in both currency and bond markets, Dan. Yeah. No, and, and again, you know, it's funny, we've, we've tried to be a bit patient with this because like, like the thought that that could be so neatly wrapped up in a handful of banks that went under and then were pushed into the hands of stronger banks. And then the, the Fed and the Treasury just backstopped deposits and did all this stuff. You know, we pointed out last night, um, Carter, on Fast Money, that Schwab is filling in its gap from earnings. I thought that was interesting. The KRE is rolling over a little bit. You just did what you did with the XLF. But I think this next chart is pretty fascinating because it is the big kahuna. It encapsulates a lots of things as it relates to sentiment about markets, as it relates to financials, insurance companies, consumer companies, the whole lot. And it's Berkshire Hathaway. And I got to tell you, Guy and I spent some time talking about the SMH, ETF to tracks the semiconductor index, which I also think is probably the next important thing, okay, going on in this market here. This chart on a five-year basis, they look very similar, Berkshire to SMH here. And what am I seeing? Because, Guy, there's something, I don't know, man. You don't even have to draw any lines. Doesn't show. The lines draw themselves. Yeah, I mean, Carter, this, to me, you know, if this continues, this is a textbook double top. And, you know, we spent the last year and a half basically rallying off those lows, but we basically got ourselves just to the prior, I think that's a prior all-time high that we saw early in 2022. Now, I'm not suggesting how Berkshire goes, the broader market's going to go, but clearly a huge component of the XLF. Right. So uh, without putting any lines in, we know that it it is uh, it is the market in many ways. Does it have a peak in Q1 of 2020? Yes. Does it drop during COVID? Yes. Does it bottom on the same day as the market? Yes. Does it top on the last days of uh, 2021, early 22, like the S&P? Yes. Does it bottom in October? I mean, it, the market has the same trajectory. It's just different. But this one's made it back to its high. The S&P has not. And so let's draw the lines. We know that you have these well-defined. And so the question is, does it falter here and turn down? I put a red arrow in. You'll see it in the next iteration. Um, I think so. Uh, we can annotate the double top uh, as, as follows. The, the point is that even if it ultimately makes a new high before you can exceed a former high, you typically contend with it. And so it's backing and filling on schedule and contending is backing and filling or backing away. 
uh, the red arrow is my thinking that it does back away uh, from here. Uh, but it speaks to uh, that, that the biggest weight, right, at 13, almost 14% of the XLF has moved right to its former all-time high and is struggling at that level. Gary is saying, and I understand this, he's saying not a double top until you get confirmation. Yeah, that's fine. And there are shows that will tell you after the fact, you know, what just happened. We're trying to be in front of certain things. So, you know, we're saying that formation is setting up for that. I happen to think that's how it's going to manifest itself and reconcile itself. And if I'm wrong, I will come on here next week and say, guess what? That double top was not correct. We blew through on the upside and, you know, that's the way it goes. But you try to be in front of these things, not, you know, with the rest of the mama Lukes to talk about things ex post facto for you Jesuit education people out there. No one's been go card guy. Uh, no. Yes. We're trying to anyone. I mean, we're, we're not journal. At least I'm not, I guess I'm not a journalist. I'm not reporting on the facts after they've happened. It's like saying it's not a double top. It's like saying it's not an election win until the person wins or it's not a world series. win. Yeah. No kidding. This is, this is elemental. Not to sound like uh, contradicting every comment that comes up here, but let's have the comments be sort of thoughtful and practical and relevant versus just, sort of um, obtuse and stating the obvious. Yes, of course, it's not a double top until it's happened, but we can make judgments. You could say, I don't want to bet this one, leave it alone. I do want to bet it, bet it short for the double top, or guess what? Bet it for the breakout, or uh, you know, you go play golf. For the first person that says what movie the uh, word obtuse was used, I'll give you a shout out. I obviously know Dan does as well. My uh, sense is Carter will know. Free water bottle. Free water free bottle. Water free bottle market, market call water bottle. Shawshank Redemption. Carter wins. He gets a bottle. That That's going to get you sent into the hole, Carter. All right, listen, bud. We really appreciate you uh, doing some heavy lifting here with us today on the market call. All right, guy. Let's do a couple things really quickly here. Um, let's go to the S&P yeah. minis, the, mm -hmm. the, the futures here, because I think this is kind of interesting. You know, we're off about three and a half percent from those recent highs here, but it's not the S&P that I'm most focused on when we pull that one up. And we're going to go to the NASDAQ 100 uh, E-mini futures in a second here too. You know, that looks like it's going back to that breakout. 43.50-ish. Okay? Yeah. But okay. yes, that prior high from August of 22. Yeah, it feels like it. And we have that rising 150-day moving average. Maybe by the time it gets there, they're converging a little bit. And that at that point, someone's going to have to make a decision, mm -hmm. right? Like Because that is the technical level. This one, though, the NASDAQ 100 E-mini futures, this is really interesting to me, Guy, because look at that, the steepness of that uptrend, basically unabated mm -hmm. until that move. Now, one of the things I'll just say, and you know, we've been talking about this, Apple and Microsoft, the way that they sold off after earnings. Now, granted, you could say, for some of you kind of, Mama Luke's, or what do you call them? Mama Luke's. Uh, Mama Luke's. You could say that, well, th the move that they had over the last few months was pretty astounding. The only thing I'm going to say, when we don't have valuation support, when, when it seems to be a very fuzzy picture on the fundamental front, as far as, you know, Apple has guided down revenues two quarters in a row. I, mean, I think this was, okay. yeah, three, but okay. yes, you're so, right. So, so, so let's look at the technicals, okay? Because Microsoft and Apple, five and a half trillion dollars in market cap, have already broken their uptrends that have been in place. So when I look at this e-mini future guy, what does this say to you? Because you know, next week, and I know we talked a lot about Nvidia. Nvidia, but next week, you know, when this company reports on August 23rd, I mean it really holds the fate, in my opinion, 100%. of the NASDAQ. This entire chart hinges on August that report and the subsequent either guidance or price action. Yeah. And again, Nvidia's had it, you mentioned it yesterday. It's doing it again today. It's having a remarkable bounce off the low we saw 
intraday yesterday. Yep. I mean, it's pretty significant bounce. I think Morgan Stanley, if at me if I'm wrong, but they obviously said this sell-off is a buying opportunity. I think they have a $500 price target. That's great. Maybe they're right. And maybe Chinese are ordering chips ahead of us. I have no idea. This bounce is extraordinary. But they do report next week. And again, at current level, so where's stock trading? Probably about 450 thereabouts. Trillion-dollar company. Probably north of 60 times forward earnings-ish. My sense is we're either side of 24, 25 times revenue-ish, regardless of what they say. Again, historically, yeah. that's a very expensive company in that sector. I mean, there are companies that may deserve that, and maybe NVIDIA is one of them. But, you know, the semi-space, the last I look, is still a highly cyclical Dude, industry. I, I, I was shocked. You know, we were recording a pod at 9 o'clock. NVIDIA was down on the day. This was yesterday morning, okay? And, and from its lows yesterday morning to its highs, okay, just a little bit ago, it's come off about a percent. It rallied about 10%. That is just do the math, guy. Mm -hmm. It's a hundred billion dollars in market cap because a couple brokers said next week it's not going to be, you know, it, it's going to be fine and it might be fine. Okay. So, for any of you guys who are really interested in this name and the semis, um, I have Dan Niles on with me. I'm going to record it this afternoon. He's a Satori fund. Um, Dan, in, in my opinion, is a brilliant tech investor. Um, I've known him for 25 years or so. That's going to drop an OK computer tomorrow morning in the podcast store. So, go follow it there people we're going to talk all things q2 tech earnings and what he sees for the balance um, of the year so so check that out um guy a couple of things danny moses our pod partner mm -hmm. on the team came in the office um, about an hour and a half ago was all geeked up uh and you're gonna have to tune into the on the tape podcast on friday to see why he's all geeked up but he said i got the trade of the day for you xhb Okay. And so he just gave me three bullet points. That's the best trade idea. Isn't it when you get three bullet points in a chart, that sort of thing? That's Danny Moses. Yeah. And so I looked at September expiration and I bought some puts on the, on the, uh, 83 line paying a little less than two bucks for that or something like that. You see that consolidation there. So that is a Danny Moses special. I've also been legging into some September uh, 34 mm -hmm. puts in the XLF guy. Okay. So these are some near dated. Okay. Near the money. Um, risking what I'm willing to lose, uh, you know, risking about 2% or yeah. so of the underlying. I kind of like the risk reward here, especially when we go back to some of that initial conversation in the summer of 15 or in other periods where we had sharp drops. Everything looked no, great. No I one mean, expects it, right? If you go back and look, I mean, you know, you can Google machine yourself, check out your fact yeah. set machine, but the, the move we had from late 14 into the spring of 15 into the summer Market was just sort of doing its thing, you know, unabated, le oh, lower left, upper right, yep. making an all-time high, I think 21-something in the S&P 500. Then obviously we fell off a cliff, seemingly out of nowhere. So I'm with you, and it would be, it would be fitting because yesterday, I think it was yesterday, those yeah. 13 Fs came out, and Buffett initiated in three home builders. Um, DHI was one of them. I want to say Toll Brothers or Lennar. And NVR Corp. NVR is like a $6,000 stock. So it looks like yeah. he didn't buy a lot. He actually, across the board, I think he bought equal amounts in terms of dollar amounts. But it would be interesting that in the short term, he basically would have rung the bell. That announcement would ring the bell on home builders. Just something to think about. All right. Last thing before we get out of here, um, let's take a look at crude oil. We spent some time talking about it last night on Fast Money with mm -hmm. Halima Cross. We got a question she, about she, WGI. She the best? She's the best. Well, RBC Paul Capital Sankey Martin. and Halim, I mean, they are the absolute best. Yeah. And she says it all the time. She loves coming on CNBC's that, Fast that, Money. That was really fun. I mean, she's just, first of all, she's a brilliant mind. But let's look at this crude chart here um, really quickly. Guy got back up to those kind of 
spring highs and yeah. you know nearly 85 or so in w2i um you know if we were to draw another line an uptrend from those lows okay in july we kind of just broke that today okay one day does not make a trend mm -hmm. by any means here um thoughts on crude we've also seen the dollar come back the dixie um yeah. it was what uh, below 100 now it's, it's above 103, 103 and a half yeah. right yeah no i mean obviously and you said it last time on the show so this this is your trend line so this is where Listen, we've been in a downtrend for quite some time. We've had some bounces along the way. I think it's safe to say that this all this is is one of those bounces. Now, I think you know what camp I'm in. I think crude oil is going to continue to be a story this year and mm -hmm. the next year. I think Kalima believes that as well. However, we're trading the here and now. This is a logical place for it to stop. And if you look at a name like Valero, for example, if we could pull it up real time, that stock went from 104 to 139. It's having an awful day today. So that traded up to sort of resistance levels as well the same way crude did so in the short term crude is pausing here and i think doug cass who's watching right now put on a short position in oih i think yesterday or earlier today and that's probably going to prove to be a really good trade in the short term as well because oih has gone basically from 245 level in june to four or five year highs late last week or so so maybe that's sort of exhausted itself I don't think it's over, but I understand why you would bring those charts up and say we're due for a pause. Yeah. Lastly, let's just look at that Dixie. We have a chart there. You see that well-defined downtrend, a series of, of lower highs here after that really sharp move back to it above the moving average there. I mean, I, I might be looking to play UUP to the short side. I'm on that one. Guy, last one, and then we're out of here. I promise you. Gold. Let's look at the gold futures here because this this is hanging one, on. Well, hanging on, but it's below that uptrend, right? That's been in place since October, and um, maybe it's the dollar, yeah. maybe it's inflation. I mean, you tell me. The inflation readings is that kind of weighing on the gold trade right here? Well, global and it's funny. Global yields going higher, <laughs> you know, fighting inflation actually works against gold. It's somewhat counterintuitive yeah. because if inflation's a problem, you would think that gold would work. The flip side of that is if everybody knows it's a problem and they're trying to combat it with higher rates, gold's going to be under pressure. That's historically has been what's happening. It's happening now. I think, and I think Danny will agree with this as well, and we'll obviously talk on Thursday. I think what's going on with currencies, what's going on with gold market, what's going on potentially in Japan with, I think, some cracks in there, obviously, curve control, yield curve control that they've had in place for quite some time is going to find its way into the gold market. I would understand, though, if you said, you know what? Everybody's trying to fight the obvious. Gold's going to suffer. And here we are. So I'm still a bull. This chart suggests otherwise. Yeah, no, I just bring it up because, again, you know, we, we use that term sort of divergences. Sometimes it makes sense to kind of pick apart some of these things that you think should be happening based on certain, you know, relative performance, things that we've all become accustomed to. And some of them, when they're not happening, it makes sense to kind of keep an eye on. All right, we covered a lot of ground here, guys. A lot of ground. We went a little over, but that's what we do. <laughs> Excuse me. I want to thank the great Carter Braxton Worth. By the way, that's a pretty cool, I mean – the risk reversal yeah, thing in the background. Is did you do that? Say? Or who did that? Rafus? I don't know. It just, it just Jacob? popped up. It I mean, just popped up here. I mean, it looks, you know, Amanda it looks, did it, actually. I mean, it looks fantastic. Yeah, we got a couple other signs coming. We're going to have a market call sign. We've got all we're kinds of OK stuff computer going sign coming. So we're going to have stuff. an on-the-tape sign coming. We might even have a portrait of Danny Moses. How do you think that would do? We should auction that off and you know, give you have, the money to I know charity. you never watched the Seinfeld, but you know, there's this very never famous picture. It. Maybe you guys could find it of, of Kramer. It's like the Kramer. It was like a, a portrait. Is that of the him. star of the show? Well, he's one of the stars. Seinfeld would be the star. Because otherwise the show Seinfeld. Otherwise, the show would be called Kramer. I mean, I don't know if that should have been a spinoff, actually, by the way. 
I've never seen. I've never seen. And you can at me all you want on, on the comments. I've never seen. Obviously, flipping through the channels. For example, if the Yankees are playing and if they're not on, yes, and I go to channel eleven. Yeah. Some that's WPIX. That's just. I'll go looking for the Yankees, and sometimes you and you see like a Seinfeld. Yeah. But I, it's not like I sit there and say, "Oh, this might be fun." Yankees. I never Seinfeld. found a particular. You know, you know, Seinfeld's a big Mets fan. Even more reason not to like him. No, I knew that. And, and his and his little his sidekick George on the show worked for the Yankees in real life. No, on the on the show, he worked for the Yankees on the show. And Steinbrenner. It was really funny. It's a funny bit. You would actually enjoyed a lot of it. It was back in Doubtful. the nineties when the Yankees, before they won in ninety six, they were the hapless Yankees. And right. I know they were doing very well in ninety four into that strike year, weren't they, guy? There's a they were doing well, and it's a funny. Well, I don't want to get into it, but apparently, because I know this, because one of the worst trades in Yankee history was the Jay Buhner trade. Yeah, and apparently they referenced that on one of these Kramer shows, Seinfeld shows, Kramer shows, which I find that would be mad money. And you're on the you're on the fast money. I'm on the fast money, five o'clock. But that's it for market call. That is. Thank you, Carter Worth, for appearing on a Tuesday. Yeah, that's typically not. He's going to be back with us on Thursday. Not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Tomorrow will just be the two of us. Just the two of us. Tomorrow we'll be back at 1 o'clock. Today's yeah. episode, of course, I want to thank our sponsor, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Great commercials with yeah. Laird Hamilton and others. And obviously, FactSet, our data provider, financial data and analytics, powered by tomorrow. I thank you for all the comments, snarky or not. I appreciate them all. But I will tell you, I will come back at you. I'm just saying, because that's what I do. So just, you know. Buckle up, people. That's it. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.